Morning Glory and Evening Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It's the last radio hour of the week. It's time for the Hillsdale Dialogue, which since January of 2013 has occurred at this hour every week. We talk with Dr. Larry Arn and or one of his colleagues from the faculty of Hillsdale College about a great work or personage of Western civilization. But changes come to Hillsdale. We, we pick up the phone in the president's office today and we find Professor Stephen Smith there and Dr. Arn is missing. Has there been a coup? <laughs> A peaceful takeover of his office for your show. Well, I think that's wonderful. If you change the locks, you could accomplish a lot for Hillsdale. <laughs> well, they're all everyone's out in D.C. for a board meeting, so here right. I am. Well, I, I wanted. I'm glad to get you alone because now we can actually talk without his throwing buckets at me. Um, <laughs> the the semester has just begun. Are you teaching Shakespeare this year? Actually, I'm on sabbatical, Hugh. And that's what I thought. So why are you there? Why don't you go away and do something? <laughs> well, my kids are doing, our kids are doing very well in school, and uh, one of our boys is um, with special needs, and he's doing very well at his local school. So we're staying here and enjoying a, a local year. So what do you do on a sabbatical in Hillsdale? Are you writing a novel? Are you, are you preparing a new course? What do you do? Uh, usually, write. You can you can do either. You you propose a project. I'm working on a writing project, a book on Thomas More, and also I'm hoping to turn um, what we've been doing into a kind of general introduction to Shakespeare. How to read Shakespeare? Why to read Shakespeare? And that would be a great service to people. But you'll have to explain to them how, at the end of our short course in Shakespeare for the radio audience in the Hillsdale Dialogues, you chose to end with perhaps his most obscure play. <laughs> well, you know, uh, as I mentioned at the very beginning, The Tempest is the first play of the first folio, and Cymbeline is the last play. Uh, and my, one of my discoveries as a reader and teacher was just how great this late play Cymbeline is. Um, I'm not alone in my estimation. Uh, Hollywood agrees. There, there's a new movie coming out in January, a movie version of this with Ethan Hawke and I think Ed Harris. Um, but uh, I chose it because it links up so well with all the themes we've been discussing, too. You know, The Tempest begins with the question, does anybody on this ship know how to work the peace of the present moment? Peace of soul, peace in a family, peace in a city. And Cymbeline, the last play in the first folio, actually ends with peace concluded between England and Rome. The last word of the play is peace. So I see the, all of Shakespearean drama as addressing this opening question, how do you work the peace of the present moment? How do you bring about peace, and especially a way out of tragedy? Well, I'm going to come back to how the folio was organized, but before that, because I don't want you to rush, this is a beautiful bit of, of polemic. You sent me George Bernard Shaw's estimate of Cymbeline, and I, I want you to read this so that people understand Shakespeare's been confounding people for a long time, even the best of every generation. <laughs> Yeah, I mentioned the movie, uh, but there are, there are dissenting voices, and uh, my favorite one comes from George Bernard Shaw, and here it goes. Cymbeline is for the most part stagey trash of the lowest melodramatic order, in parts abominably written, throughout intellectually vulgar, and judged in point of thought by our modern intellectual standards. Vulgar, foolish, offensive, indecent, and exasperating beyond all tolerance. And he's going to go on from there. Uh, in fact, Shaw rewrote the end of this play to make it better. To well, I, I think you should read the whole thing. This is wonderful. Yeah, it's a really great piece of writing. 
There are moments when one asks despairingly why our stage should ever have been cursed with this immortal pilferer of other <laughs> men's stories and ideas, with his monstrous rhetorical fustian, his unbearable platitudes, his pretentious reduction of the subtlest problems of life to commonplaces against which a high school debating club would revolt, his incredible unsuggestiveness, his sententious combination of ready reflection with complete intellectual sterility, and his consequent incapacity for getting out of the depth of even the most ignorant audience, except when he says something so transcendently platitudinous that his more humble-minded hearers cannot bring themselves to believe this, that so great a man really meant to talk like their grandmothers. <laughs> with the single exception of Homer, there is no eminent writer whom I can despise so entirely as I despise Shakespeare when I measure my <laughs> mind against his. The intensity of my impatience with him occasionally reaches such a pitch that it would positively be a relief to me to dig him up and throw stones at him, knowing as I do how incapable he and his worshippers are of understanding any less obvious form of indignity. To read Cymbeline and to think of Goethe, of Wagner, of Ibsen, is for me to imperil the habit of studied moderation, which years of public responsibility as a journalist have made almost second nature to me. All that said... I pity the man who can't enjoy Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> so what is he doing? That is that, that. What is he doing there in that piece? <laughs> well, I think you, I think this is one of the best tributes to Shakespeare's greatness that I've read. Is I mean, he he is uh, taking him the task for every imagined or real defect in this play, and then at the end confessing that he liked it. <laughs> yeah, but you know what's interesting about what you're reading? You substituted high school for polytechnic. And that was an effort to make sure that the audience stayed with you. And, and I think that's part of the problem with Shakespeare, is that we don't take enough time to break it down and you lose the audience because of the, just the evolution of the language over 500 years. Yeah, I think that it's important to, um, you know, you mentioned taking time. In the first folio, the editors of the book said, you've got to read him again and again, or see him again and again, or both, ideally. And the language will become more familiar. It remains difficult because he's a great writer, and sometimes he addresses difficult subjects, complex thoughts. Um, but we can become accustomed to his kind of English again. I see it happen all the time in class. And I have a friend who's a teacher with me, and he says every time he studies Shakespeare, uh, he feels like his own thought, uh, wit, and English improve. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, my friend David Allen White said the only way to read him is to read him out loud at the beginning. And, and that way you'll pick up uh, much more of the play much more quickly. Or in the case of Antony and, and Cleopatra, which I saw this summer, having seen it, I could read it much more easily now. Oh, certainly. I, I, I think uh, it's not an either-or when it comes to reading and performance. I mean, I think it's a both-and. And one series that has come out recently is called The Archangel Shakespeare, and it's an audio CD or, you know, MP3 um, set of the plays and they're unabridged you know read versions and they're very helpful um, it can be a little confusing you know if you don't have the book with you but I often recommend the students get the archangel version and, and listen to it while they read to get, to get a sense of, of the wit and the play and the, the irony now, now before we throw ourselves into Cymbeline uh, the folio uh, were, is the first play of the first folio is Tempest and the last play of the first folio is Cymbeline but that's not the order in which they were written correct no, no. The Cymbeline and Tempest are both late plays. They're, late plays. they're his romances. 
I'd go so far, you know, for your listeners with the romances. Everyone is familiar with the big four tragedies, you know, like King Lear, Othello, Hamlet, Macbeth. Um, but you really can't know Shakespeare finally unless you deal with the last group of plays he wrote, the, the, the romances, you know, Cymbeline, Tempest, Winter's Tale. Because in those plays, he's really setting about to resolve the tragic problems uh, that he explored so unforgettably in the earlier plays. So, so why, why attach importance to the ordering of the folio, or is that just a clever way to remember? Uh, or were the people who were ordering it attempting to give us some idea of how he wanted them ordered? You know, we, we don't have any way of resolving that. Uh, my own sense, is, after studying the plays, is that they're remarkable bookends, you know, especially with the theme of peace of soul in mind. You know, the first folio has a comic structure. It begins in a, in a storm, a tempest, which is a tragic symbol, and it ends with peace. And so I've always thought that they they were on to something. And, you know, Cymbeline is classified actually as a tragedy in the first folio. It's the last tragedy. Um, but when you look at the bookends of the first folio, it goes, again, from the Tempest and that opening question to the piece at the end of Cymbeline. Who, I, I think but that's beautiful. Who organizes it? Who does this? Who puts it together, the folio? His, his friends, Hemmings and, and Condell. And that's what, and, and they put, uh, we began our series by talking about the monument to him at Stratford, and they put beneath it an indication that they did design this with an intention that it be read in a certain way. Yeah, well, they... They explained that they've taken taken care of his orphans as best they could, the plays, and presented them to the public. And, and I, I presume, and you know, some folks don't like this, but I presume editorial design and intent. I mean, I think it's very nor- normal to assume such a thing with a book, especially from folks who worked with him and knew him. And the last wouldn't necessarily be the best, but it would be appropriately the last. Yes, you know, it's funny if you uh, make your way through Cymbeline. It's kind of fun to read him after all the other plays, this play, because it's like a summary of his histories, his tragedies, his comedies. You can recognize about 15 different Shakespeare plays. We'll We'll talk about that when we come back, America. Professor Stephen Smith of Hillsdale College wrapping up our series on Shakespeare. Going solo today from the President's Suite at Hillsdale, where the coup is in progress. Stay tuned. It's The Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America Chew Hewitt. Last radio hour of the week, it is the Hillsdale Dialogue, wrapping up a series of hours devoted to Shakespeare, all of which have featured Professor Stephen Smith, who teaches the Bard at Hillsdale College. For all of the Hillsdale Dialogue, simply go to q4hillsdale.com, and there are soon to be, I think, 85 total. And uh, more than that awaits you at hillsdale.edu because not only are the Hillsdale Dialogues available through a link at hillsdale.edu, so is Imprimus, the monthly speech digest of the college, and many absolutely free, wonderfully fulfilling, and extremely useful online courses, which can be a part of your homeschooling curriculum or just your general adult education, including one on great books, and I hope one on Shakespeare. Have you done a full course on Shakespeare yet, Professor Smith? Well, yeah, here I've been teaching full courses my whole time, but for the online class, we are doing Great Books 2 now, which is Renaissance to Modern, and I actually just recorded the Hamlet class. And, and so do you? how long does that go, 35 minutes as well? 
Yeah, they, they say 35, but, you know, I, I went a little bit over with Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's okay. If you're just going to identify the bodies, it's going to take extra time. That's like, uh, you know, uh, CSI Denmark is what it is. <laughs> and so can I, can I go back to George Bernard Shaw? For, I had a question in my margin notes of your margin notes. Sure. With the single exception of Homer, do you really think George Bernard Shaw didn't like Homer? Or is that the wink at the audience of the whole thing here? I think I think it's you know he, those are the two heavyweights in the, in the whole passage are Homer and Shakespeare, and I really think the end when he says all that said I pity the man who can't enjoy Shakespeare, real you know reveals that he he is frustrated with the play he, again he he rewrote the end of it, um, but because he says I pity the man who can't enjoy this guy so it, it's a, it's a very funny tribute. Uh, and critique at the same time. So, yeah, I think it's a wink. All right, let, let's do an overarch here of Cymbeline. Uh, yeah, war is between Rome and England. Of course, in Shakespeare's time, there was a war between Rome, the Catholic Church, and England, Elizabeth, Elizabeth's Reformation and Henry VIII's Reformation. That's what this is all about, I gather. Yeah, I think it's an inescapable connection. You know, the play is set in ancient Britain, and and yet... You know, at the end of the play, and we'll come to this at the proper point, the one, one of the last images of the English and the Roman flag waving friendly together, I mean, after the, the century that had just passed, or, you know, 75 years that had just passed, most English men in that first audience would have been taken aback by such a claim. Um, so, yeah, I think it's uh, about that, um, among other things. You know, the story reads like a, a reworking of Othello and all the earlier plays, as I mentioned before the break. And... It features this international conflict, but it also has a love story in it. There's a poor but worthy gentleman named Posthumus Leonidas, and he marries the daughter of King Cymbeline secretly. This causes Cymbeline to fly into a rage. Cymbeline is the king of England. He's the king of England. Right. He, Posthumus, is banished, and he goes to Italy. And there he meets a, a young Italian man named Giacomo, who says, you know, you, you think your wife is so great? I bet I could go to England and seduce her easily. And the young man is uh, you know, kind of given to passion, and he really loves his, his wife, and he, he, he thinks you know, the, the villain is caught calling all this into doubt, as he is. And so he enters into this foolish wager with the Italian. Giacomo goes to England. He does not seduce uh, Imogen, but he gets all this information that makes it seem like he did, comes back, tells Posthumus he succeeded, Posthumus flies off the handle, orders that his wife be killed by his one servant, and then uh, the rest of the play follows. From now, I'm pretty sure that people driving around have never heard of this. They've got the general outline of Romeo and Juliet and of Caesar. They, they, they've seen uh, The Tempest and A Winter's Tale and A Midsummer's Night. They, uh, they know all these things, but they haven't heard any of this. Why is that? Well, I think that it's it's a it's a big, long, and it is a strange play. But when it's been produced with any sort of sympathy, it's generally triumphant. I mean, there's a great BBC film version of it. It succeeded masterfully at the Globe, the New Globe in, in London. Did you see that production yourself? I did actually. It was wonderful. They only had six cast members, and so what they did, wow. they, they they took the improbabilities <laughs> of the plot and all the parts and. And they kind of turned it to their advantage and made it a kind of point of laughter. So, you know, one guy playing three parts and all of this, extensive doubling. But it was a wonderful production, and by, and by the end, extremely moving, you know, which is, which is the key to these late romances. 
the endings are just incomparable. Uh, Shakespeare is aiming for joy with all his dramatic intelligence and power at the end of these plays, and he succeeds triumphantly. Now, the, 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 the king of England, Cymbeline, ends with a peace speech. Tell people what that is and, and recite it, if you will, and then explain why you think it's so significant. Sure. So after this, you know, much in the love affair that goes wrong, and there's a big battle, England defeats Rome, but then Rome ends up um, being spared, and, and England agrees to pay the tribute. All these are loaded details. And at the end, the king says this, Publish we this peace to all our subjects. Set we forward, and let a British and a Roman ensign wave friendly together. Through London's town march, and the temple of great Jupiter, our peace will ratify, and we'll seal it with feasts. Set on. Never was a war did cease, ere bloody hands were washed with such a peace. So the sense at the end of the play is that an incomparable peace has been worked between Rome and England at last because of this, you know, this play. And I think that, um, again, that's, that's where he's going as an artist. He wants to, he wants to demonstrate the need for peace of soul uh, and then peace within the family and then peace between nations. And what does that require from, from a person and from a country? And again, the dominant note at the end is of, of joy and peace at last between these two countries. So how does Posthumus bring this about, or what's his role or his agency in bringing about the reconciliation? Because it's, it's pretty far-fetched in these days of IS and, and uh, the third war of Iraq. Uh, we've had two, one under George Herbert Walker Bush, one under President Bush. Now we're having our third under President Obama. You know, peace between nations seems pretty mythic. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Is he, you know, in Shakespeare's vision, uh, it comes down in this play to Posthumus's willingness to forgive his enemy. And at the end of the play, when when all, when all the truth is revealed, Act Five of Cymbeline has something like twenty-seven separate revelations. Like Shakespeare's gone nuts, you know. But one of the revelations, of course, is that, that the villain was a villain. Posthumus was misled. His wife was innocent. And the villain is put in Posthumus's power to you know, dispose of him as you will. And instead of revenging himself upon the Italian villain, he actually spares him with a very famous speech. He says, kneel not to me. The power I have on you is to spare you. The malice toward you is to forgive you. Live and deal with others better. Now, that kind of line is what Bernard Shaw was mad about. It. Yeah, yes, it is. Exactly, isn't that's, it? He, that's, what he, that's, that's Shakespeare in his grandma mode, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but what's interesting is that that act of forgiveness, so we've been talking a lot about prudence in our shows. This is charity and prudence together, and it creates possibilities for the play that, that we don't see in the tragedies, namely mending and peace. We'll be right back with Professor Stephen Smith talking Cymbeline in the Hillsdale Dialogue. The last radio hour of the week continues after this. Stay tuned. 34 minutes after the hour, American Chew Hewitt with Professor Stephen Smith. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last hour of the radio week. All of the dialogues, beginning with Homer and conducted with uh, one of the uh, members of Hillsdale's faculty, often Dr. Larry Arn, the president of the college, uh, often one of his colleagues, sometimes together. All of them back to Homer are available at hugh4hillsdale.com. Professor Smith was our uh, our guide through Dante, has been our guide through Shakespeare these last few weeks. 
I want to talk about the dream, but I want to preface it. Um, dreams get a bad reputation in the modern theater because they're such a device, Professor Smith. It makes it easy to write, actually. Uh, but but they were much relied upon by Shakespeare, and their dreams all through the plays. I'm thinking of Caesar's wife's dream. Don't go to the, don't go down to the forum today. And and there's a big dream in Cymbeline, but they are very easy to come up with, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you you open yourself to the charge of you know solving a dramatic problem through a dream, right? Or, and and yet, <clears throat> as you mentioned rightly, Shakespeare doesn't hesitate to deploy them famously if he had a few few key moments in his plays, and Cymbeline is no exception. In fact, Cymbeline has, I think, the most extraordinary dream in all. Of Actually, each of the late plays features a scene like this, but in Cymbeline. He doesn't dream of of a of a ghost or, or you know a goddess or things like this. Posthumus has a dream of Jupiter himself. So Posthumus he, is the the hero and the villain, sort of, because he got taken in by the villain, and he falls asleep. And what does he dream? Well, he dreams of um, this is after he's been captured. The, I won't try to explain the plot right <laughs> exactly the time we have, but he's he's in grief and agony. Um, he's acknowledging that he should not have ordered his wife to be killed. It's rather like Othello. He falls asleep, and in the middle of this dream, Jupiter appears to him in, in a tempest, in thunder and lightning, and on an eagle. And instead of uh, actually condemning Posthumus, he speaks comfort to him. Um, Jupiter, though he's a you know, pagan god, he speaks in Christian language, and he promises that the play will end with peace and plenty. So what's fascinating about this dream, and the reason I think it's so extraordinary, is that um, it features the big god, right, Jupiter. Um, he's personal, he's provident, he's merciful, uh, and he is uh, assuring Posthumus at this point that the play will end happily, it'll end well. So do you, do you imagine that we're supposed to imagine Jupiter as Jesus? Is that the deal? Well... I think he's. I think it's. The, I think he's the Christian God. Yes, um, because what Jupiter says here, just to give you one line, he says, "Whom best I love, I cross to make my gift the more delayed, delighted in." So he speaks in the language of the cross, and in the language of gift. And so I, I think it, it sounds to me like you know a Jupiter version of God the Father. And and you noted to me. This is where piety comes in. The last few weeks we've been talking about prudence. Earlier in this hour you mentioned charity, mercy. And now this is where personal piety enters. Yeah, I think sometimes you'll hear folks offer this account or that account of piety in Shakespeare. But in the last plays, you know, piety is a virtue and it's a necessary virtue. Would you explain it to the audience of the Steelers fans what piety is? Well, it's that that virtue by which we... um, respect the gods and, and give the gods their due, which is which is usually praise, thanksgiving, acknowledgement. And in Shakespeare, you know, it's a okay to to have pious regard for Jupiter. In fact it's natural, you know, to, to have this reaction. There is a god of the play, finally, in Shakespeare. If you think back to some of the tragedies, you know, for Hamlet God is is a he's a, a kind of an inscrutable lawgiver with a cannon. <laughs> um, yes, but, but for Ham for Prospero and in, and in Cymbeline, God is mercy and God is provident and, and God is love. So in these last plays, again, that's why I think they're so important. You get a clear teaching on 
on God than you do in the earlier plays. And so is it your read that he is talking to the people of England and of Elizabethan England to put aside their theological differences and focus on the central message of Christianity? Along those lines, you know, so here's the thing. In, in the tragedies, hatred and evil, they unleash consequences that none of the characters can govern. Think of King Lear. Right. Hamlet, Hamlet who's so arrogant, he, he can't govern his, either. Love of the enemy, love of enemy and forgiveness, mercy and charity, they have a similar power. They unleash dramatic possibilities and consequences that are good. And so, you know, when you look at the tragedies on the one hand, romances on the other, you see tragedies of evil and their consequences. But then here, love of enemy creating all of a sudden the surprising possibility of joy and a happy ending in a very, in a war. Uh, we'll be right back with Professor Smith. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Professor Stephen Smith of Hillsdale College. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues, which we do at this hour each week, are available at hugh4hillsdale.com. And by the end of this year, we will have finished up with our two years of dialogues that will have begun with Homer and ended in the American constitutional movement and uh, its negative, the progressive era. But right now, we're in Shakespeare and we're wrapping up. And, and to do that, let, let's go to the end of Cymbeline. And, and Professor Smith, give us the lessons that people sort of, uh, in the grandma mode, as Shaw would say, take away from this. Well, you know, again, the play doesn't come, come out of the blue. It's very much in line with the earlier works we've been studying together. You know, in the case of this young man, posthumously anatus, you should say posthumous, but I'm just saying it in our contemporary English. You know, he is a figure, again, like Prospero or Edgar, who's learned through a kind of tragedy and suffering a way to become better. We didn't do measure for measure, but here's a line from measure for measure that captures this thought in Shakespeare. They say the best men are molded out of their faults and become better for being a little bad. Huh. And that's a comedy, right? Yeah, but, but boy, but the college men love to hear that, don't they? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when, they ought to keep that handy when they go in to ask forgiveness into the office in which you're found right now. <laughs> Mold me out of my faults, Dr. Arn. I do see a post-it note here that says, <laughs> get Hewitt for what he said about Churchill. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know where he's going. But um, yes, he Toshmus has learned that in his last acts and his words, they bespeak peace and effectiveness of soul. He's capable of greater prudence and charity than he ever was when the play started. So these trials that the characters undergo, the suffering in, in these plays, leads to this greater effectiveness. And one other thing with this play is he's capable of, of a better marriage. Yeah, it's interesting that you put this in your notes. The man who's offstage in all this, the fellow who's taught me my most Shakespeare, David Allen White, says all of the comedies point to marriage and marriage points to God. And that that's Shakespeare's big driving theme through all of this is that you get to God through marriage. Well, this is the thing. In this play, England's peace and plenty, their, their future prosperity depends not just on the leader, not just on you know the king or the king's um, you know descendant. It depends upon an ordinary human marriage. So that's part of what Jupiter tells him in the dream. So England's peace and plenty depends on a good marriage. And so when he works peace at the end of the play, that's a very important part of it. The other thing to mention is we've been talking so much about leaders, you know, like a prince of Denmark, Duke Prospero, King Lear. 
posthumously anatus is an ordinary citizen. Right. And that's a very important point in this plan, one of the reasons I like to teach it. He doesn't become king at the end. Yep. He's, he's a husband. He's an Englishman. He's a citizen, you know? And, again, England's peace and plenty depends on this guy and his marriage. But the king Not notices the king. him. The yeah. king notices the acts of the ordinary citizen, which very, very rare, but when it happens is a very good thing. And you, you're, I am reminded of the president's looking up at the State of the Union and recognizing ordinary citizens. And that began with the man who pulled the man out of the Potomac, Lenny, with President Reagan. And that was a great moment. I think so, because it's simply not true that the health of the country depends upon only the president. I mean, that's crazy. You know, we know that. It doesn't depend on the on only the you know official leader or, or senator or whatever. It depends upon what Thomas More would call the leading citizens. It depends on the citizens. And I think that's why in this play he, he does something a little different with this guy and his marriage. Now, he's married to royalty, but again, he is a normal, you know, ordinary person. <laughs> but now, stepping back, Shakespeare retires, goes back to Avon. He doesn't really impact the course of English history, though he impacts, obviously, and greatly English literature, because he's forgotten almost immediately, right? Well, no, he he's, he's enjoys the Vogue for, for a while. Um, and then the theaters are closed, there's a whole story here. But um, he retires, and we don't know all that much about his retirement. We know he also wrote Henry VIII after this. So he does address uh, the beginnings of, you know, the, the New England. Um, but then he, then he passes away, apparently, from a fever. When we look at his whole career, though, um, he wrote these plays for... Not, not just, you know, the groundlings, not just the public, uh, all that. He wrote it for the leadership of England. So he had an opportunity to move and to influence and to educate and to delight King James, Queen Elizabeth, all of, this, all of these royal figures. So he did have an influence in that way. Um, Do you think, he, so intentionally, he, he set out to, as an author, move the country's politics? Yeah, I do. I mean, yeah. I, it's hard. It's hard to imagine it otherwise because he. Imagine if if you could put a story on or a play on for Washington D.C. right now, and, and all the and all the royalty had to attend it, and, and you were a cunning artist. Uh, you you might very well think I'm going to address the most important issues that I see for our country in its future. <laughs> oh yeah, and you and but you'd be careful. You would definitely be careful. You, you, he was good at that, too. Yeah, he was very, very... There is that undercurrent. Is he really who he is? Yes, most most people I respect say there's not even a debate. It's Shakespeare. And then there's a question of, is he Protestant? Is he Catholic? Is he in favor? Is he out of favor? It's a fascinating dilemma. You can teach the whole world. You can teach all of the West through Shakespeare, can you not? Yes, I mean, when you look at his plays, he he has given in his his own country a complete dramatic treatment from Cymbeline to Henry VIII and, and Sir Thomas More, that play we talked about. He also has a history of Rome, a history of Greece. He's made what looks like a pretty comprehensive meditation on Western civilization. And, and at the end of that, well, it's not his last play, but in the last folio, it's peace. He wants peace at the end. I want to stress that before we come back for the last segment, which is a surprise segment. That's where you wanted us to end our Shakespeare conversation is noting that he wants friendship and peace between state and church. Yes. 
When we come back from break, the surprise last question for Professor Smith. Don't go anywhere, America, except over to Hugh4Hillsdale.com. Every one of the Hillsdale Dialogues available there. Or go to Hillsdale.edu. If you're a senior in high school, it's a great time to go and pick out an application and send it in. If you want a great professor like Professor Smith, he'll be back teaching next year. They don't get to get sabbatical forever. So if you're thinking, I'm going to miss him, no, he's going to be teaching in the salt mines forever there. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 55 minutes after the hour, America, wrapping up our series of Hillsdale Dialogues on Shakespeare with Professor Stephen Smith of Hillsdale College faculty. He's on sabbatical this year, but he is their Dante, their Shakespeare, their Renaissance literature expert. So, Professor Smith, how old are you? I'm going to be 42. 42. 42. Now, the reason I ask is after each of these weeks, I get emails and people are charmed by your approach and the obvious love you have for it. When did you discover Shakespeare and what has a life of teaching him done to you? Well, I discovered him in, in high school and it was, it was Macbeth, a great, great play. And then after that, a single wonderful performance of King Lear and I was just done for. Uh, I, I went to college to be a chemical engineer and then became a Shakespeare person, all because of, uh, of the bard. But for me, you know, he has been the best teacher. And among, you know, I, think, I tend to think of the authors as friends, you know, the best teacher and the, and the best friend that I could have had about our human nature and about our human condition. He, he's pointed out um, the importance of these great virtues to me, He's inspired me to get to know myself better, self, self-knowledge, self-examination. And he's also um, taught me the great significance of, of love in particular. Think of The Tempest and of Cymbeline, those last plays. It's the lovers who have learned how to be both prudent and charitable that, that really become the most powerful figures in these plays. And what I wanted to, if I understand correctly, you didn't come out of a Shakespearean family. You, no, you didn't grow up with this. You learned it. Yeah, I learned it. Though there was, I, I owe one great debt. My mom um, used to say lines that she liked, and I remember as a young boy being intrigued by them. One line being, "Nymph in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered." Hamlet. And even when I had no idea, what in the world? I had no idea. <laughs> I had no. My mom liked that line, and I had no idea what it meant. But I, my head turned, and I went, hmm, <laughs> that sounds good. Well, that's, that's back to Shaw again. But <laughs> <laughs> well, as you know, as they say, from, from the mother's lips, right? yeah, and, uh, well, I, that, that, really, that really played a part. And then I had a, very, a wonderful teacher in high school, Mr. Smith, as it turns out. And it all just proceeded that way. And everybody take away from this what David Allen White has said for years is that Shakespeare is accessible. Don't let anyone tell you that he's not. Yeah, that's. That's the crazy position. The first fully, yeah, that, that, that he's not accessible. Um, or, or like the fellow said recently on Twitter, that he stinks. Right. You know? um, we need to read him again. And his friends, he made the first folio, gave the best advice. Read him again and again. And then if you don't like him, you're surely in some manifest danger. I really think we need uh, his art, his thought, the education the plays provide. We need this for our culture. We need to start a fire again with the reading of these books. Professor Stephen Smith, you've you've done your best to strike the flint. Thank you, my friend. I'll be back next week, America, with the next Hillsdale Dialogue. Until then, be well.